Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Addictive Pod. My name is Adrian, and today I have another interview for you guys on the topic of recovery from alcohol. My guest today has a master's in biology, and her science background gives her a unique approach to addiction recovery. What I love most about this episode is that we talked about emotional sobriety, a piece that is so often missed in discussions about recovery. How do we handle emotions once sober? How do we manage the rage, depression, sadness that our brains are telling us to fix with just another drink? Find out on this episode with Jill from the Sober Powered Podcast. Welcome to the Addictive Pod, Jill. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I just finished reading your ebook today, the um, Emotional Sobriety one. So I'm really oh, happy. Thank you. Yeah, I actually recommended it to my dad as well. I was talking to him today and I was, uh, I think you did a really good job of just focusing in on the important points and making it accessible and then ending it with, with some good action steps. So I'm, I'm looking forward to like asking you a few questions about that later on in the, in the podcast. Yeah, definitely. But before we get into that, I think I, yeah, I want to know more about your story of recovery and early on, uh, sort of understanding, um, why alcohol became a problem for you, because I know that you were, you had it all together. You had a, um, a marriage, I believe in a, a career. Um, what do you think contributed to, um, you needing to cope with alcohol? Yeah, I think it was something that was in me before I even had alcohol. Um, I remember the very first time I had a glass of wine, I was on an international cruise and with my family and the drinking age was 18 and I was 18. And my parents said, you know, have a glass of wine, whatever, have a good time. And I had a glass of wine and I felt such intense shame from one glass of wine that was legal that I had permission to have. (laughs) And like reflecting on that, like so much shame that I didn't drink for four years after that experience. Wow. What do you but think that was about? I think it's just um, like something from all the bullying that I experienced, all the different trauma that I experienced, like shame has always been, unfortunately, like a big part of how I treat myself, I guess. I'm always very kind to other people and like give them a break. But when it's me, like I'm the worst person ever yeah. and alcohol just, I don't know. It just brought it out in, in like a really crazy way. Um, tell me more about the, the bullying and, and trauma and, and things like that. If you're comfortable talking about it, was that something you experienced even as a little kid? Yeah. So up until age 10, I had like the best childhood. Um, I had like a lot of friends and, kids were nice to me and I was nice to them and I had sleepovers and whatever. And then we changed school districts when I was 10. So I started a new middle school and it was still in the same town. It wasn't like I moved somewhere far away. Um, And one of the very popular girls decided that she didn't like me and she turned the entire school against me. And they used to stand around in a circle around me and make me cry and just be awful to me. We almost moved. Actually, my parents wanted to move and I was like, no, no, I can handle it. I should have said like, yes, thank you guys. Um, And then, 
you know, over the years, people just kind of forgot about my existence. Maybe they would make fun of me a little bit here and there. And I never like had friends to eat lunch with or to hang out with. So I just kind of studied and hung out by myself. And I remember um, probably the best way to sum up the bullying is my junior year of high school. It started to get bad again for some reason. And kids would sing songs about me on the bus, like while I was sitting on the bus and just like make fun of me. They started spreading really horrible rumors. And I remember one day I decided to go back to the cafeteria. It had been years since I tried to have lunch with anybody. And I was like, maybe they'll just, you know, let me kind of be at the same table and ignore me, but I can be present and not have to hide. And I sat down and every single person got up and left, like all in unison. And I was sitting there like in shock. (laughs) And one girl came back and I was like, okay, she's really nice. She feels bad that everybody did that. And she sat down across from me and she was like, why don't you just go kill yourself already? Everybody hates you. And then she left again. So I never found out like what I actually did. I think everybody just knew, like by the time it was my junior year, it had been so many years since fifth grade. Um, I think everyone just knew they weren't supposed to like me. uh, So they just didn't. But yeah, it was awful. And it it makes you really weird when you're bullied for so long and you don't have friends and stuff like that. So it was rough. That is, oh my God, that is terrible. That is like, I, I think boys... Uh, in grade five or even early high school, they'll beat the crap out of you. But a, like that a girl did that where she can just turn an entire school against you to the point where someone is telling you to kill yourself. Like that is a deeper level of trauma and abuse. Like that's like psychological abuse. Um, when, when you were 18, so at this point you had graduated high school, what type of beliefs did you internalize about yourself with all these experiences? Like what type of uh, shame and beliefs were, were you carrying when you were 18? Yeah, I thought that I was a loser. Um, I didn't think anyone would ever like me. I always had boyfriends. Um, the boys sometimes didn't have a problem with me. But so I wasn't concerned about like my love life in the future, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to live a friendless life forever. And there's obviously something wrong with me that I don't know what it is. And it just made me like not want to put myself out there and talk to anybody because I was so used to people reacting a certain way. Like, why would I even bother after eight years, you know? Did you, did it lead you to focus on school more? Cause you like you went the science route and you really, you seemed like you did really well in that. Did, did that, was that partly geared uh, or motivated by um, this, this happening to you? Yeah. Cause I didn't have anything to do. Yeah. I wasn't like invited to anything. So I would just study. And then my teachers would always give me really nice feedback about how smart I was or like what a good job I did. And um, sometimes they would say it like to the whole class and it made me feel really good about myself. So yeah, I would just study and go to bed early and just kind of fade into the background as much as I could at school and then repeat. And then that's just kind of what I did in college too. I just studied, went to bed early, um, and that's it. And eventually, like it took a couple years, but eventually I broke out of it and 
was able to go back to my like friendly bubbly Mm -hmm. self it's just i experienced that as well in high school i mean my school was really small we didn't even have a cafeteria table for me to be rejected from but i had no (laughs) friends like it was tiny and it basically since i wasn't getting any type of affirmation in that way I sought it out in school, like from my teachers and from, okay, here's a test. I can just excel at this and this will like distract me from the fact that I have no friends. So, I mean, it is kind of a plus because now you have a career. Now you, you were able to develop this other side of yourself. Um, as you started to open up more and meet people in college, did you said that you didn't drink from 18 to 22, right? Yeah, I would have maybe um, like half a beer. Okay randomly and then there was one time that I did go when I was 21 I went out with two friends for a drink but like I never really got drunk or even got like a buzz after that um that shame when I was 18 so I was always just kind of like avoiding it as much as I could were there other things that you did was was it uh like with food or with uh work or any other ways you used to escape those feelings of shame yeah i was very obsessed with being thin which was okay. another reason that i wasn't going to drink because being thin and drinking don't mix with each other so being thin was like the priority Mm -hmm. of my life and that started like towards the end of high school and then really came into full power my freshman year of college Um, and I maintained that obsession until my first year of graduate school so five years and yeah that was all I cared about I used to research like how can I get thin Mm -hmm. I was a member of forums this was um back in the day when like pro Anna, so pro anorexia Mm. or pro Mia, pro bulimia forums were a thing and we would all go on there. Yeah. So I was like really into it. And for that reason, like drinking just wasn't, it wasn't interesting to me. And I knew like, I felt bad about myself when I did it. So why would I do it? Fair enough. Um, was when it came to food, were you uh, were you more like abstaining from eating a lot or were you bulimic or how did you go about doing that? Yeah, I was just like, can I eat as little as possible yeah. and exercise as much as possible? That was that was my thing. And then when you do that for long enough, you you go crazy like and you trigger binges in yourself yeah. because you're just like hyper focused on food all the time. That like so I would have once a week every Saturday morning it was a ritual where I would binge because I was home alone. So I would look forward to it all week. And mm. Saturday morning I would watch like everybody leave the house. I'd pretend to be asleep. <laughs> and then I'd go downstairs like, yes, what's in this kitchen? Yeah, because you were starving probably. You hadn't eaten properly in like six days. I yeah. correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong, but I think anorexia has the highest death rate of any disorder is that right yeah it has a big effect on your heart and yeah it eventually just causes um like organ issues heart issues it's very dangerous i i was just so shocked to think that i thought maybe like major depressive disorder or like schizophrenia might have a higher rate but um it's a it's a huge problem um 
as as you finished college and as you started working, did you ever have any health problems, like any serious issues with with the eating side of things, or did alcohol start to pick up as a way of coping instead? Yeah, so I never had any physical issues. I had a lot of mental health issues, obviously. Um, I had like exhaustion, but I didn't have anything like diagnosable. But when I started graduate school is when I met my husband. And I thought like, I just want to be normal for him. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to live together and like actually eat with him and go out to dinner and, you know, not be obsessed with salads or like picking the perfect place. And because of that, I started going to therapy and just working through that. And I had a really good therapist and, and we started off like, let's eat. Cause lunch was my easiest thing to just like, I don't need lunch ever. You know, you get busy with work and it's like, Oh, who cares? And we started off with just like very small lunch and just see, like, I didn't die. I didn't gain 40 pounds overnight. And as I saw that, like nothing actually happened to me. Then I was like, okay, well, maybe I can have like a bigger lunch. Maybe I could go out once in a while. And like slowly I just I just came out of it and saw like if I stop obsessing and like thinking about diets all the time, I never binge. And I haven't binged in um, like eight years, I think. That's awesome. Since I was – yeah, so – um, I'm very lucky, but that's when I started drinking. So. As you kind of loosen up your restrictions, and it's like, hey, I can have lunch with a beer or with a glass of wine. So when did that start to, or or I guess before it, it had any problems, like what was the extent of uh, your drinking and how did that start, start to accelerate? Yeah, it was it was a problem from, from the first time. Um, the first time that I ever, so everyone drank in grad school except me and from my experiences in middle and high school I just wanted everyone to like me just so bad like please will you just give me a chance so I was like they all drink and I don't and they're not going to want to hang out with me if I'm like this boring non-drinker so I just started like oh I'll get what she's having and I just like played around with it and then the first time that I actually got like a real buzz was um, unfortunately I was on a date and we were at this party um, in Boston. My friend won like some kind of bar party and people just kept handing me shots and I didn't understand. And I was like, oh, yay. Like, so let's small. all do shots. <laughs> yeah, right. And I was like, I'm not drunk right now. So, you know, I can have another shot. Yikes. And I had absolutely no understanding of drinking. And I got so drunk, so sick in front of my date. It was awful. And yeah, I had no control right from the start. I never had a choice like how much I drank. I would just drink until the alcohol was gone or I fell asleep. And it was right away. Like I never drank like a normal person. I I guess also your tolerance must have been really low. If you're not eating a lot and you have no experience drinking and then suddenly you're just putting that in your system, that would be that would be a lot. Yeah, so that's a good point. So who knows how many shots I had that day? I know it was, it was a too lot. Many. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that mixed with like, you know, not eating appropriately for years is yeah. a bad time. When did you start to realize that it might be a problem that you might um need to cut back? 
two years later. So what I learned very quickly in grad school was that people drink to manage stress and the professors drank with us. Um, everybody had like alcohol on their desks and would drink like at school in the afternoon. And I just learned like, this is how adults deal with their stress. And I want to be a cool adult one day. And, and I did like make that connection immediately. Like when I'm stressed, I have a drink, there's no more stress. And, um, I left grad school actually, and, and started a job as a teacher which is a very high stress career. So I started drinking every single day because I was stressed. And the following year, I noticed that my tolerance had doubled and I was now drinking. I used to make these ridiculous Cosmos in a pint glass that wow. was like, yeah, it's not a Cosmo. <laughs> it was like 90% alcohol like between vodka and triple sec and like a splash of diet cranberry. And I went to two of those a night. Wow. And that's when I was like, okay, this is not normal. I probably shouldn't be drinking this much. Can you talk a little bit about that whole concept of drinking to manage stress? Is that is that a myth? Does that actually work like from a scientific side? What, what is that about? So it does work. Um, because for a couple of reasons, I guess, so alcohol slows down our brain activity. So it reduces stress and anxiety and promotes like a relaxing feeling. Um, so that's real when you feel that. And second, like it's distracting when you're drinking, you know, it's whatever, you don't care anymore. You don't have time to worry about, you know, what that student did six hours ago and you just like have fun, you know? Right, right. But then long term, it's like, okay, your your stress system is like requiring alcohol almost to slow down. And then what happens when you take alcohol out of that system and it's even more activated now and it's even more anxious? It's a, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, exactly. So your body balances out what alcohol does. So it gets even more stressed and anxious to bring you back to your normal baseline. Right. But then when you stop drinking, you just have this like burst of anxiety. And that's why a lot of people will struggle to get past the first couple days because it's like this massive anxiety. And they're like, I don't feel this way when I drink. So I'm just going to drink and then I won't be anxious. And what they don't realize is like, you're creating it, you're making it worse. And you're just going to keep making it worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's going to get less easy to take a day off. And then in the super extreme case, um, I think in withdrawal, you can have seizures, right? Your brain is like so overactive, because you're taking away that the action that's done by the alcohol. And it's just so active. It's like your your body can't handle that. And people can die. I mean, luckily, your drinking didn't go to that extent and you weren't drinking for as long to experience that. But what, what was your experience when you started to try and taper back your drinking? How did it affect you? Yeah, so I would try to moderate and I could never do it, um, which was a big source of shame and feeling like a loser and all that. But when I actually stopped, I surprisingly didn't have um, like huge physical withdrawals. Like I didn't have the shakes or um massive anxiety or any of that. I just had a lot of emotional withdrawal. I had a lot of night sweats, um, insomnia, headaches, like the more mild symptoms, I think, 
Um, so I was lucky because I was drinking every single day for seven years straight. Wow. Oh, so I miscounted. Sorry. For some reason, I thought you said two years. I was like, wow, you really nipped this in the bud quickly, Jill. <laughs> Jill, you're no. like so quick. <laughs> you just, you knew it was a problem. You got out when you could. Okay. So it was for seven years then. It was. Yeah. I knew it was a problem right. after two years. That was my mistake. And then I drank for five more years. <laughs> right. So you tried to moderate and you kind of tried to balance it out, but. So around the seven year mark, when did it eventually, or, or what was it like around the seven year mark? What was, what was going on in your life at that point? Yeah, it was bad. Um, I developed anxiety from my drinking. Um, there's a small population of people that can develop alcohol induced anxiety, same wow. for depression. Um, yeah, I didn't know that until later, but People who do have anxiety, alcohol abuse will make it a lot worse, but I've never had anxiety. And it took like six years for the brain chemistry changes to occur that then resulted in massive anxiety for me. And it prevented me from getting sleep most nights because I would be up like freaking out and going nuts. Like the room felt like it zoomed out. Um, it was really hard to, to just live like that. And then depression is something that I've always struggled with since I was 10 years old. Um, and that got worse and worse and worse over the years. And around the same time that my anxiety developed, I developed suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I would lie awake fighting off anxiety, thinking about what a horrible loser I am, and that I'm bad and the worst. And then I would go right into like these really scary thoughts about just like what I should do about that. And that is eventually what made me stop because I was afraid of what drunk Jill could do one night. And when you eventually got to that point, what did you do? Who did you talk to about it? And how did you start to get over it? So my husband witnessed the whole thing. Uh, he was very good to me. He would stay up too. So he was also very sleep deprived. Wow. And I actually had to hit that same bottom twice. So I had the anxiety and the suicidal thoughts. And then I was like, okay, I'm not going to drink for 90 days. And then I'm going to be cured. <laughs> and I'm going to become a normal drinker who can moderate right. because something about 90, I don't know. <laughs> so I did the 90 days. <laughs> And the suicidal thoughts and the anxiety disappeared. And I was like, I'm cured. This is amazing. Yeah. And then I started drinking again and I moderated for two months. That's the only time I've ever moderated in my life. Um, but that was because I had just taken such a long break and I got used to having a weekend without drinking, dealing with stress without drinking. But we went on a cruise um, two months after the 90 days ended and we had the drink package and we were in Europe for the first time. So I drank every day on the cruise and then I came home and I was right back to it, like right back to business Yeah, making every up for single lost day. Time. Yeah. Right. And I, I was drinking so much and I would start like 11 AM on the weekends at brunch because that's okay. And I'd go like all night and very, very quickly, anxiety returned, the suicidal thoughts returned, and I suffered for four months with that. And then eventually I was like, 
this will never be different. Whenever you drink, you're going to want to kill yourself Mm -hmm. and have massive anxiety and blackout all the time. And, and I just accepted it, but I had to see it twice to really believe it. I was the same way. I remember, uh, coming into recovery, um, getting better, like mentally and physically better. Cause that's what happens when you stop your addiction and then hitting around the two month mark thinking like, wait a second, I'm not, a, I'm not an <laughs> addict. Like I'm fine. Look at me. Like I can, I'm fine. I'm not depressed anymore. I'm just going to go do my thing. I was like, I told my sponsor, I was like, I'm, I'm good. Like, this is not for me, but like, thanks for your help. And then it took me another <laughs> maybe seven or eight months of uh being on my own to think to realize like oh wait a second i'm suddenly not doing well anymore this is this isn't a coincidence um so the second time that you came back when you when you decided you know what this is this is a real problem um what resources did you find or, or what things really helped you this time around to to beat this i didn't do anything which is so bad and I tell everybody like don't do that (laughs) um I just sat in my house um avoided people as best I could I refused to go in my living room for a month because that's where I used to drink so I never went in the living room or watched any tv I listened to a lot of podcasts um because I felt so ashamed that like I have to quit drinking um I didn't want to talk to anybody and I was just like humiliated and I felt like such a loser. So I would just put in my headphones and work and that signals people like, I don't want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. I'm listening to whatever, like don't interrupt me. So I just did that. And then um, I was going to parties because I stopped drinking in November of 2019 so there were like company parties and Christmas parties and whatever. And I did it all on my own with my husband, like to talk to. I didn't even know about the sober community on Instagram. And then when quarantine started in March, I was four months sober. And I was like, I have a lot of mental health issues. <laughs> and now that I don't have to go to work in person, this is an excellent time to start therapy. Cause nobody's going to know. I don't even have to like make an excuse or come in late or anything. So I started therapy, um, which I'm still doing with the same therapist every week since, um, quarantine started, but I wish that I had done like anything mm-hmm. in the beginning because it's so lonely when you isolate yourself and you just feel like a loser. When you um, tell me about discovering the sober community. So when did that happen and, and what's that been like for you? So I was always a lurker on sober Facebook groups. Yeah. And like for at least a year, maybe longer before I actually stopped drinking. And I used to post like everyone is so kind. I used to post like about moderation and like why I think I can do it. <laughs> And I used to post about like fights with my husband and, and like, you know, he's the worst. He, he made me drink tonight (laughs) and people were just so kind. They recognized what was going on. Yeah. I wasn't quiet. I didn't just like sit in the background. I was posting. You were more than lurking. You were, you had a couple things to say. (laughs) Yeah, I did every once in a while. (laughs) And, um, so I utilized that when I quit for real. 
and I had built up some friendships um, just from being there. But it took me until I started uh, my own podcast to discover the cool community on Instagram. I had no idea. And I started my sober account um, when I was eight months sober. And I just made all these friends instantly. And everyone's so nice and no one's like competitive or sneaky or weird. We're all just supportive. And there's like all these lives, like people do live interviews. Um, there's multiple a week, like so many, I can't even watch them all. And that would have helped me so much in the beginning if I could just watch like an hour of two normal looking sober people talking about being sober. That would have just been it would have been so helpful but it took me it took me a long time to figure it out i think especially during quarantine where everything's virtual anyways it's so cool that people are doing this and that there's so many resources now um but you're lucky i feel like that's so risky posting especially early in recovery i'm trying to imagine like posting on a facebook group or something like that and I just, oh, that sounds so risky. Someone could have just gone off at you and like totally ruined your your views about recovery or your views about any of this. So it's good that that uh, didn't end badly, I guess. Um, tell me a bit about the process of therapy. So did you find, um, well, first of all, like what, what method of therapy were you using or are you still using? So my therapist does acceptance and commitment therapy. I might be saying it wrong, but that works really well for me because a big part of my journey is like embracing reality and not lying to myself or, or misleading myself anymore. So that's her approach too. Um, but yeah, she's just really cool. She connects things for me and She's helped me learn like a lot about myself and my motivations for like the way that I behave and feel. And yeah, she's helped me just, I think, close doors on some things that I was questioning about myself. Like I have a lot of anger and that was my biggest problem when I stopped drinking. I was so filled with rage all the time. And we talked about that. It took a really long time because it was a lot of rage, but eventually like I feel that I understand myself now and I understand why I am an angry person even though that like sucks but um so I don't feel like ashamed or confused or anything I feel like I understand why I'm angry it's okay that I am and I'm working on it and yeah it's just great I think everybody should go to therapy this is this is the next thing I wanted to talk to you about I'm glad you brought it up you seem to me, I mean, I've only talked to you a couple times. You just seem like such a kind, nice, quiet person. I mean, I've never, <laughs> I, but I can understand how um, often, especially if you're uh, presenting or if you're being kind and um, worrying about other people's feelings, the anger can start to start to be internalized and can start to really um, become a problem. Um, how did you work through that? How did you start to work on rage uh, in sobriety? Because I think with addiction, we numb out from that so much. And we, um, with addiction, we, uh, we can also blame it on the addiction where it's like, oh, I was only angry because I was drunk or something like that. I, I wasn't actually angry. That wasn't me. How did you start to process that? Yeah, so other people 
made me angry. It was always their fault, like this jerk at work or my husband. Like my husband was the worst husband ever. That's why I'm so angry. And I didn't think actually that I was an angry person. I didn't think I had a lot of anger. I thought like something would happen and I would get angry and then I would drink at it and, you know, make it worse or whatever. But um, when I stopped, I was angry all the time. And it was big. Um, It was like a feeling. That's why I call it rage because it would just like take over and it was hard to live my life and and like do other stuff because I was just so overwhelmed with this feeling. And it would last for days even on the worst times. And it took a while because it was so powerful. And now like I can feel angry, but it's a little background anger that I can still like live my life and it doesn't disrupt anything. Um, But it took a lot of talking about and like, you know, tell me about your childhood. (laughs) Did you ever feel angry when you were a kid? And um, yeah, I would say that it took close to a year before that rage was very manageable. Like now it's something that like I notice obviously because I feel it but it doesn't disrupt me. Um, So that took about a year because I just didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to accept it for a while that I was really angry Mm -hmm. and you have to work through like that blame and resentment. I had so much resentment in the beginning too. So that had to go away first before I could work on the anger. So there was just a lot there that I didn't anticipate when I stopped drinking. What do you mean by that? Uh, Resentment versus anger. What's the difference? So I felt resentment at my close family and at my husband because I felt that they knew I had a problem. They observed it. They saw a bunch of bad times and they never said anything to me or tried to help me in any way. Like at the end of my drinking, I was literally like begging for help. Like, can somebody please help me? I can't live like this. And nobody helped me. And I felt really angry. Like, how could you guys do that to me? Um, Do people actually not care about me? Like that kind of feeling. And it's more of like a a grudge, like a problem with someone that influences your relationship with them. Uh, But that wouldn't exactly make me angry. It was a different feeling. It was like bitter versus Mm. angry. Um, In your uh, your ebook about emotional sobriety, which I loved, you talk a lot about uh, being being proactive versus being reactive. Um, One of the at the end of the book, you just list a, a bunch of habits about how to actually develop the being proactive and having emotional intelligence, um, which I was glad you did because as I was reading it, um, you talk about the importance of emotional intelligence. And my worry is that it's almost like this set thing where it's almost like IQ. It's like something that you're kind of born with and you can try and work on it, but you're basically set with what you've got. Um, how have... How have you developed this emotional intelligence in your life? And what have you done to really build this part of yourself? Yeah, so when I was a kid, I hated being a kid and I wanted to be an adult, um, which is weird. I think most people don't feel that way. And I always considered myself extremely mature. 
for my age. And I am in some ways, like I've built a really nice career. Um, I'm married, like I have a good marriage, whatever. But I didn't realize that I was still acting like a 20-year-old, even though I was 29. (laughs) And when I stopped drinking, I was 29. Um, And I was still handling things like I did when I was 20. And I never improved the way that I handled any experiences. Like I would, I would have something stressful happen or someone would offend me and I would flip out about it, even though maybe it's been happening for years or similar things have happened for years. And I never just learned to deal with anything. I would just freak out immediately. It was everybody else's fault. It was probably my husband's fault in the end. (laughs) Obviously, obviously. (laughs) And um, that's like being reactive, like something happens and maybe you don't even let the whole thing like happen or finish happen or the person finish speaking and you just blow up. You make an assumption and you just explode because of the assumption. And a lot of times it's wrong and your reaction is, is inappropriate and it's not correct. And people who are reactive are also usually people who don't like to be wrong and have trouble apologizing. So that just makes them really even more isolated because people have to, they have to act like very careful around someone like that. Because if they set you off, but they didn't even do anything, and then they have to like go apologize later, that's exhausting. And I found that I was just consistently acting that way and I was never getting any better. I was never maturing. And I think the easiest way that I've seen it is like how my husband and I lived our life. Like we were all about partying and we want to live right by the city because it's cool. And I don't understand why people would ever want to live in the suburbs and, and all of this. And we just wanted to like, I feel judged. But no, sorry, go on, go on. The city is cool. It's cool. <laughs> but, um, and like, we're going to rent forever and, you know, screw buying a house. That's for losers. And then I stopped drinking and I was like, well, you can't party like forever. <laughs> I mean, you can, but I don't want to party all the time anymore. I don't want to have a house that's on top of all the other houses with a really loud (laughs) upstairs neighbor. And that I just matured very quickly. I feel like I went from 20 to like maybe 28 um, in my first year. And because of that, like I learned just how to respond to things and like let things happen and then be like, okay, hold on. How do I feel about that? What do I actually think? And like you think through it in your head and then you respond. And that's the key. And that's what a lot of us don't have. And that's why, um, you know, that's a big part of why we're problem drinkers in the first place. Because we have something happens, we blow up, then we get drunk. And that's it. That's the whole path. (laughs) I'm really glad you mentioned that, that bit about just sort of waiting, like being mindful, really kind of asking yourself, like, what am I feeling right now? Like, what, what is coming up for me? Um, in your in the PDF or in the ebook, you mention about asking feedback from friends and family, and actually listening to that feedback as a way of sort of gaining that self awareness. How did that go for you? Was that kind of scary, especially if these are people that you blamed a lot or, or had some uh, bitterness towards? 
Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing to do. Um, I try to do it at work, which is also really hard. I try to say um, to my boss, like, I really would like to get promoted. <laughs> how, how am I doing? What should I, what should I do scary. better to achieve that goal? It is. Because um, you can still feel like, like, oh, he doesn't think that, that I do so good in meetings. Like, oh, he hates me. He thinks I'm the worst. And you can feel that way, but then later you're like, okay, he's just trying to help, like leave it alone. But I had a conversation with my husband really early, like probably um, three to four months in not drinking. And I asked him like, how did my drinking make you feel? Did you want to leave me? Um, did you love me less? Like all kinds of stuff like that. And he had a little feedback. He didn't want to hurt my feelings. So it was a tough conversation. And then we dropped it for almost a full year of sobriety. And then I brought it up again. And I was like, hey, we should really talk about this because even though I'm the one that suffered and went through all of this, he was there every single day experiencing it. And seeing your spouse or family member, someone that you really care about, like suffering that much takes a toll on you, like whether we can admit that or not. And I just gave him the opportunity to like, just say it, like say how you felt and how was the experience for you? I asked him specifically, like the last night that I drank, what was that like for you? And it was hard to hear. I didn't like to hear some of it, um, but I needed to hear it and he needed to say it. And I noticed a big improvement just in like our communication and relationship after that conversation. Yeah. The hardest conversations always help with just having better connection and better communication. I found, um, this reminds me of some of the other steps or some of the other action steps you mentioned, which seem to me they're geared around sort of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, really understanding how other people are feeling as opposed to just imagining like what you would do in the situation. Um, why is that so important for emotional intelligence? Like I wouldn't have expected to see those in this list. Yeah. So empathy is a big part of emotional intelligence. And even though I would never do this to you, like, I can't believe that you would do that. I don't understand. Well, you're not me. You don't have all my experiences. You have your own motivations for things. Instead of just saying you suck because I wouldn't do it that right. way, why don't I think about like, why would you actually do that? And maybe even ask and listen. Um, but people who abuse alcohol struggle a lot with empathy, just probably from before they started drinking, but alcohol makes it even worse. It makes it like it really messes with your emotional center in your brain and it makes it so that you don't perceive emotions very well um, there have been some studies where they I think they read a story or they showed like a quick movie clip and it was like clearly one type of feeling and the problem drinkers perceived a totally different feeling than the control group in the study the people who weren't problem drinkers and all of that just, again, it isolates you because if people are trying to be close to you and you're always right 
and you never understand how they feel or care to understand how they feel. And you can't even pick up like when people are upset, we can usually see that and be like, ooh, I might have hurt their feelings. But when you're drinking, like maybe you can't even recognize that. Maybe you think they're happy. Mm-hmm. So I think just being empathetic and caring about other people and letting them instead of just deciding that they're wrong and the way they think is wrong, the way they behave is wrong. You should think like first, why would they do that? Like maybe think about something that happened in their life that motivated them to act a certain way. And maybe they're not proud of it and they want to fix it, but it's like an immediate reaction for them. And that can be a much more productive conversation than just saying like, you're wrong. (laughs) I wouldn't do it that way. I am quickly realizing that I am not very emotionally intelligent. I think think I have always considered myself to be an empathetic person. I've always considered myself that, yes, of course, I care about other people and I, I, um, I understand what other people are going through. But I think the way you described sort of understanding that person's motivations as opposed to what would I do in that situation I think that's something that I struggle with and it's something that leads to resentments for me because I think, hey, like if I was there, I would have treated myself this way and you're not doing that. And that makes you a jerk. Um, it's I'm really happy that you outlined it in that way. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was sort of de-stressing uh, habits, like things that help you sort of relieve tension and help you um, handle the things that come in life since you're already in a calm state. Um, what are, what are your favorite things to do? What has really helped you in the last couple of years? So when something happens that I don't like, that's upsetting, but I don't get like filled with rage or something like that, when I'm more like in a manageable state, I like to really like check out and watch the bachelor Um, or like just stupid reality shows like that. And that always like just stress disappears. Um, cleaning my kitchen because that's a small win. That might take like two episodes of The Bachelor and then you're like, okay, let's go clean the kitchen. But I clean the kitchen and then that's a small win because I feel good and that helps. Um, I get, because I live right by the city, I can get like delivery anything So I order delivery ice cream, which is just so embarrassing. But (laughs) doesn't it melt um, by the time it gets there? Like, wow. No, they have like a special um, cooler thing that they put it in. And yeah, it makes me feel like dangerous and kind of (laughs) cool. (laughs) Um, You're treating yourself. Yeah, right. I deserve it. But for the times when I am extremely overwhelmed, I will go on a rage walk um, and I go and I think about like how much the person sucks or the situation sucks and you just walk at like super speed, like really like almost stomping. Yeah. (laughs) And by the time the walk is over, I'm calm or I will go to the gym and I'll lift like the heaviest thing that I can find. Like I always hit PRs when when I'm angry. (laughs) Yeah. When I'm really angry. Um, so stuff like that, you just have to get it like out of your body and somewhere else. If you just sit and you're angry and you think about it, well, then you're going to get angrier 
And if you just continue to sit there and do nothing, you're just going to keep getting angrier and more triggered. So you have to do something. It doesn't have to be physical, but anything just to get rid of it. I vent to my husband too. Um, It took some time for him to learn how to appropriately deal with my venting. But I like when I will like complain about someone from work and then he gets really into it and he's like, I can't believe that person. Like who does that? What a freaking loser, man. Like, And he makes me laugh. And when I'm laughing, I can't get angrier. Yeah. So things like that. Um, but yeah, just getting it out. Some people will rage journal. I'm not really a journal type person, but um, I know that works for a lot of people. Your husband's so emotionally intelligent. I, uh, when my, yeah, he's smart. that's smart. That's a good response. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I, it makes sense why that helps you or why that's, uh, yeah, he's showing empathy, but he's also almost like exaggerating it to the point where you can yep. kind of like see where you're, how you sound. Um, <laughs> This has been really fun for me, Jill. I think um, you've given me a lot to think about. These action steps and these ways of developing emotional intelligence, I am going to be trying them. I will try my best. I will try and be more emotionally intelligent because I think it, even beyond recovery, even beyond the addiction, I think this is about just being happy. Like This is about just having a life where you feel at ease, comfortable in your own skin, comfortable with people in your life. Um, so I'm really grateful to you for coming on the show and to sharing everything that you've learned and everything that you're continuing to learn. Um, is there anything else that you want to share before we wrap it up? Anything that you would want to say to someone who is, um, struggling with getting sober, or who is struggling with rage? I think if you're struggling with emotions that are triggering you or you're newly sober and you're just like pissed off all the time, um, well, first just know that that's like super normal there's nothing wrong with you um and second like don't try to run from those because your problems and your feelings don't disappear when you ignore them or you drink them away or eat them away or whatever um try to just like get through to the other side and then once you can appropriately handle any kind of emotion they become easier it's like wow i got through some serious rage yesterday And I didn't even like binge eat or, you know, drink or do anything. And then, you know, for next time, like, wow, if I can do that, then I can do all sorts of stuff. Um, So, yeah, that and therapy always. That's my biggest advice. I love it. I, uh, I'm trying to become a therapist, so I appreciate the... uh... Are you? (laughs) Yeah, I am. I am. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, So I appreciate all the pro-therapy talk. I think, I mean... Yeah, I'm obviously biased. It's helped me a lot. It's really changed my life. And I think it uh, it addresses the deeper issues, like it addresses the trauma and these underlying issues that I think cause addiction. Um, Jill, thank you so much for coming on. I could talk to you for another hour. I have lots more <laughs> questions for you. Um, I hope we get to talk again soon. And I really wish you the best in recovery and everything you're doing for the recovery community. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of The Addictive Pod. If you got anything out of what Jill had to say, be sure to check her out. Her Instagram is sober.powered and her website is soberpowered.com. She has a lot of good content both on her podcast and on her website, so be sure to give her a listen. That's all from me today, guys. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode. And as always, remember that we recover together.